welcome parties. There's probably been, I could probably name about 15, 17 people that have come to the church and just planted and are already serving on teams and are already making a difference. And it's really been an incredible thing. It is a blast down there. Team one is amazing. I don't know, team one, there's something that happens when you have to set up church every Sunday, like really set up. Because if team one doesn't do its job, like we don't have church. Like it, it doesn't happen. There's no service. There's no sound. There's no nothing. We sit and watch movies, which is also fun, but not exactly why we're there. And so, um, so there's this camaraderie that happens when you just got to get the job done. And so we're having a blast. Um, great things are happening. Jesus is doing wonderful things, and I am having so much fun. But I do miss all of you. Look at all of your faces. So fantastic. Um, do miss you, but so thankful for what's happening down there. And thankful for you, right? Thankful for you, because uh, One Child But Kyle kind of came out of you. Uh, and through your giving and through uh, even some of you participating and going down and helping to launch that thing, it's going really, really strong. And Jesus is doing great things in Kyle and Buda. So thank you for that. It is great to be back here. Uh, let's pray for a minute and then we will jump into the scriptures today. All right. Heavenly Father, God, we love you so much and we're grateful for you and your spirit and your life and everything that you do. Lord, we're thankful that today we have the opportunity once again to join with a body of believers and to meet with you in a tangible and real way. And we pray that you would do the work that only you can do in our hearts today. Lord, I pray today that you would speak through me and that you would hear through my friends here and that you would have your way and help us to leave here more like you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. amen. Hey, today we're continuing our series, uh, Daniel Living in Exile. And I hope this has been good for you. It has been really helpful for me. And these ushers, they've got message notes if you didn't notice, and they would love to give those to you. So if you didn't get message notes and you want to follow along today, hand the, just raise your hand and those guys will get those to you right away. We've been walking through the book of Daniel and it's been incredible for the past four weeks. So if you've missed any of it, you got to go back. You really need to go online, onechapel.com and check it out and catch up with where we are. I'm going to try to catch you up just briefly here this morning with some of the big ideas of what we've been talking about. What we've been talking about is in the U.S. today, we are living in a major cultural moment. Things have changed for us. In the past couple uh, decades, two or three decades, the ground beneath our feet has really shifted away. It's shifted, and now we're living in what sociologists would call a post-Christian culture. Now, when I say that, uh, I, I don't mean that Christianity is gone in America. Certainly it's not. I don't mean that Christianity is out, Christianity is out in Austin. I mean, you're here, aren't you? And I'm here. I don't mean that the church is dead and dying. I don't mean any of those things. Jesus is the head of the church, everybody. It's going to be okay. But we're living in a different time than we've lived in before. And what I mean is our Western culture, it has become increasingly secularized. And it's really almost complete. So you think about it, your average 13-year-old kid and, and this guy who's grown up and on Harry Potter and playing Xbox and, and he's playing Pokemon. This kid, now, he could live his life without really thinking about Jesus at all. It's pretty easy for that kid to completely write God out of his life. He lives a fully secular life. So the question that we've been asking is, all right, well, so what do we do? How do we live as Christians in this kind of environment? Because it has great challenges. And this is a new question for a lot of us. But throughout history, there have been a lot of people who have had to answer this kind of question. So listen to this letter from a disciple of Jesus. It was to a guy by the name of Diognetus, who was, he's one of the academic elite, written in 120 to 130 AD. And it says, for Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. 
For while they live in both Greek and barbarian cities, as each one's lot was cast, and follow the local customs in dress and food and other aspects of life, at the same time they demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. <laughs> They're in the flesh, but they, that's good preaching. They're in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws. Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone, they are persecuted. What he's saying is, it's, this is what sets us apart as Christians, right? It's, it's not our ethnicity. It's not whether you're white or, or you're African or you're Mexican. It, it's none of those things. It's not the color of your skin. It's not your language. It's not the fashion. It's not your diet. It's not whether you're a vegan or not. It's none of those things. What separates you and me as followers of Jesus is our way of life. The way that we live, the way that we handle ourselves, the way that we respond to situations. But what that means for us is that we live in this tension in this world. We live in tension because on one hand, if you're a citizen of the U.S., then you kind of belong here. But at the same time, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not your full-time home. You're a citizen of heaven. And scripture says that you are a sojourner in this land. Our language today, we'd say you are a resident alien, that you're a foreigner, that, you, that you're, you're just a refugee kind of passing through. You don't belong here. This is not where you're going to stay. You live according to another set of rules. You are part of a different kingdom, and your responsibility is to help bring that kingdom here to where we are. We don't belong here. So I've got a U.S. passport. I'm a U.S. citizen. But that doesn't mean that my loyalty is first and foremost to this nation. As a follower of Jesus, my loyalty is to Jesus. It's to Christ. It's to the kingdom of God. And this creates a tension for us. And Daniel chapter 3 is where we're at today, and it's all about that tension. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 3. Now I'm going to read a bunch of this story. And so try to follow along with me as best you can. Daniel 3, 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. And all I can hear is Russ Taff. Anybody? 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. Anybody? I'm alone? Come on, bro. The bunny song. <laughs> all right, Veggie Tales. Yeah, way cooler than me. Okay, fine. Um, Set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other uh, provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, this is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, I don't know what a zither is, but it sounds amazing. The zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipes, and all kinds of music. You must fall down and worship the image of gold the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, nothing like a zither solo. You know what I'm talking about? It's really, really good. Lyre, harp, all kinds of music. All the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
So King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, the leader of the greatest global military superpower at the time, he sets up this statue. Now, we don't know exactly what the statue was. Many people think it was maybe of, Bab of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar himself, or maybe it was one of the many Babylonian gods, but a lot of scholars actually think that it was, that possibly it was an image that represented Babylon itself. In other words, it was, a, it was a symbol for the nation of Babylon. So what they're bowing down to, what they're worshiping is the nation state of Babylon, the greatest nation on earth. And all of Babylon is spread out in front of this statue. And the music plays and the zither solo rocks and everybody bows down. Or do they? In verse eight, at the same time, astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said, King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever brown nosers. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And so picture the scene here a sea of people, thousands and thousands and thousands of people bowing down to this image. And three Jews are standing there in the midst of that crowd. Now, they're quiet about it. This is important, they're quiet about it. They don't protest. They're not holding up signs. There's no bullhorn. There's no rally. They're not marching on the capital of Babylon. There's no hashtag not my Nebuchadnezzar. There's, There's, there's none of that happening here. In fact, the king doesn't even see it. But the Chaldeans, those are the, the work associates of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They see it, and they run and tattletale. They go and tell on them to the king. You thought your work environment was bad. They're telling on them. And in verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They're not angry. They're not hostile. They didn't go off on a tirade. They're respectful and at the same time, incredibly resolute. This is what we're going to do. And we got to understand here, this is a big deal. To not bow down to this image it is not only deeply subversive, it was, a, it was a threat to the status quo of what the rest of culture was doing. So verse 19 says, Nebuchadnezzar was furious and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times harder than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie them up and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, all their clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot, the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men firmly tied fell into the blazing furnace. But the story, of course, doesn't end there. Verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. 
Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. <laughs> and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command, talking to himself about himself in the third person. That's very kingly. And were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. He took his first step there. He still needs a little bit more love and a little bit more mercy, but he, he took his first step. The king promised Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, uh, the, king, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What is this story about? This is not a kid's story, by the way. Did you grow up in this story? I grew up listening to the story with the flannel graph. Anybody with the flannel board and the little guys that they put in the fire and it's really exciting and I, I love those things. I had a Sunday school teacher that did all that. Really amazing, but it's, it's not that kind of a story for us. Usually when we hear that story, it was about, and so if you listen to secular music, then you're bowing down. That was kind of the way it went. Grew, grew up in some messed up ways. Um, honestly, this story is about two things. The two most taboo topics in our society, politics and religion. Imagine my joy when I realized I get to preach on Daniel 3 and talk about politics and religion with all of you. How exciting. There's no way that you can talk about this without offending somebody somehow, some way. So when you write your emails this week, it's ross.parsley at onechapel.com and he'll be happy to answer all of your questions. <laughs> We've just gone through a really difficult season, haven't we? With this election, you know, analysts call it the most grueling election in American history. Analysts don't have to tell me that, I know that. So do you. It polarized our nation and it really left a bad taste in a lot of our mouths. And the truth is here today, there are probably three groups of people. There's a group of people that are, that are happy about the outcome of the election. There's another group of people that are devastated about the outcome of the election. And even more, afraid, nervous about what's to come. Wondering if my family has a place in this nation. Wondering if I have a place in this nation. Wondering, what does it mean for my daughters in this country? What does all this mean and, and what do I do? I understand those fears. And I want you to know that this is a family, this is a body where you can bring those fears and those conversations and we stand with you and we pray with you. We wanna be a part of this process and journey with you in faith. There's a third group that are just going, what in the world happened? <laughs> I just don't even get it. But no matter how you're feeling, I think it's important that we remember today. We live in a post-Christian culture. Right? And, and all that happened way before the election. We were already there. The election didn't change any of that for any of us. So we've been talking about how to live in exile. And I think the problem for some of us is today, if you voted for Trump, you probably feel less like an exile today. You might even feel like, I've got some hope that's increased. If you voted for another party, then, well, you probably feel more like an exile than you did before. And you may feel afraid and you may feel like hopelessness is crowding into your life. But we have to remember this, everybody. As Christians, our hope is not in a political party. Our hope is not in a president. 
Our hope is in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he does sit firmly upon the throne, and he is in charge. When we fall into the trap of mixing politics and God together, we find ourselves in the same situation that Babylon was finding itself in. Because what, Bab what chapter 3 of Daniel is really about is nationalism. It's about nationalism. It's about nationalism. It's, it's when you take politics and you take religion and you start mixing them together. I'm not talking about patriotism. Right? That's different. Patriotism is when you weep at the star-spangled banner. Patriotism is when you rock the flag shirt like every holiday that you possibly can, wearing the stars and stripes, right? Patriotism is when you get a phone call and your ringtone is... To be an American, where at least I know I'm free. Okay, that's good enough. <laughs> right, that's, that's patriotism. And that's great. You love your country. And that's wonderful. We have a wonderful country. Nationalism is when you mix politics and religion. You put them both together. It's where the kingdom of God gets swapped out for your political party. It's where King Jesus is swapped out for your candidate of choice. It's where Jesus' way of love and mercy and forgiveness and justice, it gets swapped out with anger and hate and fear and xenophobia and self-preservation. And this happens as secularism increases in our country. As secularism increases, hope in God decreases. When there's no hope in God, no hope in the church, no hope in the kingdom of God, bad stuff starts to happen. And so people have to put their hope somewhere. They have to place that hope in something or somebody. And so we end up putting our messianic hope into a party that can't fulfill, into a person who will never fulfill. Nationalism, simply put, is it's the idolatry of the state. It's worship of the state as a pseudo-God. So now, so secularism increases and God is pushed out of the picture and something has to step in. For a lot of people, it becomes the party, it becomes the candidate. But the problem, I think, for us is that too many Americans don't see this happening for us. Right? Like, we're, we easily point it out. We say, oh, yeah, well, I can see it in ancient Babylon. That's obvious. Now, I can see it in British imperialism, sure. I can see it in Nazi Germany. Oh, yeah, it's there in communist Russia. Yeah, well, I see it in China. I see it in North Korea. But that's not a problem here in America. That's not a problem for us. But the reality is... Nationalism is a huge part of American culture. Let me think about it. So, so we're talking about the statue. And in New York, in the harbor, what do we have? We have the Statue of Liberty. Now, is it 90 feet tall? No, it's 305 feet tall and I think six inches. It's big. It's over three times as high. Now, we don't go and bow down to it or anything like that. But we do take vacation time. We go check it out. We see it. We look at it. We take selfies about it. Hey, hey. We do, we do all of that stuff. We post it on Instagram. We're proud of that. Think of the national anthem at a sporting event, right? The crowd quiets down. Everyone stands as the music plays. People put their hands over their heart and they begin to sing. And it feels like this worship moment. But wait, 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 we're not worshiping Jesus. What are we worshiping here? Hey, really, if you really look at the words, we're worshiping war. <laughs> war and, and the triumph of our nation. The Pledge of Allegiance, think about the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Now think about that. It's a good question for us to ask ourselves, because what relationship does a believer, a follower of Jesus have to that kind of a pledge, to that oath? I spent some time when I was a freshman, I lived in Canada, my dad was working there. I lived in Vancouver, BC. And every morning they would say the Pledge of Allegiance to the Canadian flag. And I would stand there with my hand over my heart and I would never say the words, I pledge allegiance to. I would, I would close my lips tightly until it was over, and then I would mimic the rest of it. So, because I was proud, I would. I was red, white, and blue. I was happy to be an American, and I was not going to pledge my allegiance to something else. 
Our allegiance is to King Jesus. Our allegiance is to him and to his kingdom. We've got to remember that. Now, I'm not saying this is bad. Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying that we still do this. Nationalism is very much alive in this greatest nation on earth. Which is the second thing, nationalism, it's, I think it's a huge blind spot to the American church. Every generation has its blind spots. We look back at the church in the 18th century, and when we think about uh, in America, how in the world could they think that slavery was okay? How, how could they do that? We look back at the church in 19th century England, and we think, how in the world could they think that colonialism was okay? How could they do that? The problem is a blind spot, by definition, it's something that you can't see. It's something that is just outside of your vision, and it's lethal, but you, you can't see it. I think nationalism is a huge blind spot in our country right now for the American church. This author, Gregory Boyd, he wrote a book called The Myth of the Christian Nation. He says it this way, the myth of America as a Christian nation with the church as its guardian has been and continues to be damaging both to the church and to the advancement of God's kingdom. Among other things, this nationalistic myth blinds us to the way in which our most basic and most cherished cultural assumptions are diametrically opposed to the kingdom way of life taught by Jesus and his disciples. Instead of living out the radically countercultural mandate of the kingdom of God, this myth has inclined us to Christianize many pagan aspects of our culture. Instead of providing the culture with a radically alternative way of life, we largely present it with a religious version of what it already has. We can see ourselves in that. There's an Old Testament scholar, Tremper Longman, says it this way. We need to remind ourselves that no modern nation, whether America, England, Korea, or whatever, is in the situation like Israel. America is not a Christian nation. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. America is more like Babylon in Daniel's day or Rome in Jesus' day than it is like Israel. When you read through the Old Testament and you look for a parallel for the nation in which we live, don't think of Israel under Moses and the Torah. Think Babylon, think Rome, think Alexander the Great. I think this is true. Now, it's not to say that America is evil. No, not by any means. America is great. I love America. Have you been to the restaurants in this city? America rules. Have you tasted moon milk? America is incredible. I love, I've been all around the world and America is great, but everybody, America is not the kingdom of God. It's not. America is an empire, just like Babylon was an empire. And just like all the empires, America and its way of life have been elevated to this kind of role of a de facto God. Daniel chapter three is a story of how to live in the shadow of that kind of an empire. As followers of Jesus, whose loyalty, whose allegiance is to the king and his kingdom, how do we live with the overwhelming pressures to do what everybody else is doing? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they decided they weren't going to worship that thing. They weren't going to bow down to what everybody else was bowing down to. In other words, when everybody else was doing something, they simply said, I'm not going to participate. I, I, just, I refuse to participate. There's a couple great stories. Look at, this, look at this picture, this famous picture from World War II. This is a... This is a, a picture of the Nazi rally in the late 1930s. And everybody there is yelling, Heil Hitler, with their hands raised. But in the sea of people, there is one dude who's saying, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> that dude right there, that's August Lahnmesser, August Lahnmesser. And this guy, he's standing there. And imagine, we can look back at history now, we can go, oh, I know the pressure that he must have been facing how scary that moment must have been. And he just stood there while everyone else was saying, Heil Hitler, and said, nah, I don't think so. Look, he's smug. Nah, not gonna happen. I'm not doing that. I'm not pledging allegiance to that. I won't do that. Now, some of the backstory, apparently, 
there was, um, he was dating a Jewish girl. And so, so there's always some kind of backstory to that. And uh, he was in defiance of that. Always about a girl, isn't it? But I love this moment. There's another story um, in uh, World War II about a guy by the name of Andre Trocme. He was a French Anabaptist pastor in the town of Le Chambon. Sorry, Sarah, I don't know how to say that. Um, during the Nazi invasion, at one point, they get this letter from the Nazi party telling them to round up all the Jews in the town and turn them over to the Nazi party. But instead, Trocme sent back an official letter on behalf of the town, and it says this. We have learned of the frightening scenes which took place three weeks ago in Paris, where the French police, on orders of the occupying power, arrested in their homes all the Jewish families in Paris to hold them in the Veldiv. The fathers were torn from their families and sent to Germany. The children torn from their mothers who underwent the same fate as their husbands. We are afraid that the measures of deportation of the Jews will soon be applied in the southern zone. We feel obliged to tell you that there are among us a certain number of Jews. But we make no distinction between Jews and non-Jews. It is contrary to the gospel teaching. If our comrades, whose only fault is to be born in another religion, receive the order to let themselves be deported or even examined, they would disobey the order received and we would try to hide them as best we could. We have Jews, you're not getting them. I love that. We have Jews, you're not getting them. Now, Chokme, he was later in prison for this, but he survived the war, made it through, and it's estimated that he saved the lives of about 3,500 Jews. What an amazing story. How did he do that? Non-participation. I will not participate in this evil thing. We have Jews, you're not getting them. Put me in jail, kill me, okay. We have Jews, you're not getting them. The story is obviously very dramatic. Most of the time for you and for me, it doesn't play out like this. It's much more subtle. It's much more ordinary. It's much more run of the mill. You go out for a drink with your friends on a Friday night. You have some food, have some drinks. The server comes back and says, hey, everybody, round two. Comes back again, hey, everybody, round three, round four, round five. <laughs> Keeps coming back. And you just say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm good. Thank you. I'm good. Oh, come on, man. It's the weekend. Don't you want to? No, I'm really, I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much. You're in a business meeting. The proposal that's put on the table is pretty shady. So the guys are saying, hey, man, you're going to go along with this, right? I mean, I know it's not exactly ethical, but, but we're going to make a lot of money. And the truth is, everybody in our industry is doing this today. So, you know, just, just you're going to do it, right? I'm, I'm sorry, I, I can't. I'm sorry, I can't agree to do that. I'm sorry, I can't, I can't be a part of this. Look, bro, everybody in our industry is making this happen. It's not gonna, nothing's gonna happen to you. I'm sorry, I can't do it. You're in a conversation with a classmate or a coworker about this guy you're dating, and you're talking about how he's perfect. He's the one, I love him so much. And the inevitable question comes, oh, so are you guys living together? Oh, no, no, we're not. What? You're not living together? Why aren't you living together? Oh, well, we're, we're, actually, we're not sleeping together. Wh what? How, how, how are you going to do this? I mean, how are you going to know whether or not you're compatible unless you live together for a year and you have sex? How are you not going to know that? Uh, listen, I, yeah, I know. I just, it's just that I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus and um, I have a really high value for sex and for sex inside of marriage. And so um, we're going to wait until we get married. See, non-participation is just this quiet rebellion. It's a quiet rebellion. It's not a soapbox. It's not a get in your face. It's not a jump on Facebook and have a tirade and tell everybody what you think about everything. 
It's just this quiet rebellion against the status quo and what everybody else is doing. And every day we are faced with decisions like this and we have to choose whether or not we're gonna give in. We have to choose, is our allegiance to Jesus and to the kingdom of God or is our allegiance to the idolatry of the American way of life? Living the dream, man. It's gonna take a whole lot of wisdom and a whole lot of discernment for us to navigate this in our post-Christian culture because there are so many gray areas. There's so many difficult decisions that face us every day. And we're going to have to be able to stand up and simply say, yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I won't lie to make the sale. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I, I'm not going to be sleeping with you. I know. <laughs> I got all this going on, but I apologize for that. Um, I'm sorry. I, I know that's legal, but, but that's just, that's, that's not for me. I think it's important for us to realize here as we do this then, as we start to think towards living this way, that there are gonna be a couple things that are gonna happen as you choose non-participation in your life. Number one, it will upset people. It will upset people. Why? Because no matter how quiet and respectful you are, non-participation carries with it a critique of the status quo. It says to them, I'm not gonna live the way that you're living. Obviously bring up the question, oh, you think you're better than me? You think you're better than me? He thinks he's better than me. Right? That's what happens when you decide to make these choices. But hopefully along with this, you're bringing a vision of a better way of life, a better way of living in the kingdom. In Daniel chapter three, this happens, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they choose non-participation to not bow down. And Nebuchadnezzar is furious. He heats the, heats the oven sometimes hotter and throws all the guys in there. The same thing is gonna happen to you as you choose non-participation. Probably not the oven part, but, but people will be angry with you. Non-participation will make people defensive. It'll make people angry. It'll cause people to be insecure and maybe even hostile towards you. Which leads us to the second thing you need to know about non-participation is that it will cost you. It will, it will cost you. Daniel 3, 16 through 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this non-participation was gonna cost their lives if God didn't intervene. And so for you, it might cost you the sale. It might cost you the promotion. It might cost you the friendship. It will cost you something. And this shouldn't be new to us, right? The Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I love how it's just so matter of fact. If you want to live a godly life in Christ, you're going to be persecuted. But you don't see that on the front page of our website. <laughs> Presence, relationship, mission, persecution. <laughs> These are the things you see crocheted on grandma's bathroom wall, right? God bless our home. You will be persecuted. That's, <laughs> we don't talk about this that much. But it, it does beg the question, if you're not experiencing some kind of persecution in your life, are you really living a godly life in Christ Jesus? That's, that's not a slam. That's, I'm, I'm pushing hard on that. I'm just asking you to ask yourself that question. Where am I at? As we close here, I think that there are some things we got to think about. I do believe that there are times when we have to move from non-participation to resistance. There are times when non-participation is not enough. 
And as followers of the Lord Jesus, I think we have to stand up, especially when it comes to issues of injustice and oppression. A great example, of course, is, is the racial divide in our country. All the racial tension that we're experiencing. It's not enough for you and I as believers of Jesus to just not be racist. We have to stand. Those of us who are white, especially, we, we have to stand up. But every person of every skin color, we have to stand up together with a creative and prophetic and nonviolent voice to join with brothers and sisters until this thing is over. It's not enough for us just to stand aside and say, I'm not one of those people. There are moments when we have to step in and help carry the load and stand with brothers and sisters. We are in that moment right now, everybody. Look at the end of the story. Daniel 4, 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, how his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Think about this. This letter goes out from the most powerful man in the world to the entire known world. And it was because three Jewish men decided to take a stand. They decided to have backbone and say, we are not going to bow down to that thing. We won't do it. I'm sorry. No. And just look around, look around real quick. Look around in this room. See all these people? There are a lot more than three people in here today. Imagine what happens in our city. Imagine what happens in our nation if we choose to live this kind of life, to not go with the flow of what everyone else is doing, but to stand in our culture, not with arrogance, not with anger, not with fear, not with none of that. No protest, just non-participation. I'm not going to do that. I have an allegiance to another kingdom. Would you close your eyes? Bow your heads. This morning, we're going to, with all this stuff rolling around in our heads, we're going to come to the Lord's table. We're going to participate in communion together. And this morning, I think that there are some of you who have lost hope. Life has beaten you up. The election has freaked you out. And it's understandable, frankly. But you've lost hope because your hope has been misplaced. It's gone to something or someone that can't help, that can't fix, that can't rescue. And today, Jesus, I think, is asking you, would you bring your hope back and place it in me? Would you put it in me? The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who actually has the answers, the one who actually has all authority, the one who actually has all the power. Would you put your hope back in me? There are others of you who maybe <laughs> the life that you live and the lifestyle that you live is not so much uh, non-participation, it is participation. You're participating in culture and the things of the world and doing things that are taking you away and pulling you out of the kingdom of God. And today, I believe that he's calling you back, calling you back out of participation into non-participation. Would you come to the table today? Would you come with your hope? Would you come with your change of life and allow him to move in you and to help you? 1 Corinthians 10 is a cool little passage that talks about when we participate, when we, when we partake of the, the bread and the cup, 
Are we not participating with the body and blood of the Lord Jesus? So would you come today and participate in his work for you and let him restore you and let him give you hope. Let him bring you back. Heavenly Father, we love you. We pray that you would do the work that only you can do in us today. Apply the work of your body to bring healing. Apply the work of your blood for forgiveness of sins. Help us today, God. Help us today to live the lives that you're calling us to. Help us to live in strength. Help us to live in hope with you. Today, would you restore our hope? Would you restore our lives? Would you help us to live in a way that's pleasing to you in this culture? Jesus, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. We'll just go row by row and you just circle around here. There's a station in front of every section and receive that on your own time, all right? Let's receive.